my first job was as a technical writer, sort of. So uh, my first techcom job was actually as an alpha tester at Digital Equipment Corporation. This was back okay. in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to give too much away. Uh, and at the time, I actually thought I wanted to be a vet. So oh, wow. uh, I got a job right after high school, alpha testing deck software, a system called All-in-One. So it was like this menuing software. And uh, I then went off to college after I did a little bit of that. And I was a biology major. And uh, yeah, I moved to Philadelphia after I went to school at the University of Maine for three semesters because I wanted to go to Penn for vet school. That's where the vets I worked for, I, I worked for them as kind of a tech and that's where they went to vet school. And so I moved to Philadelphia and I got a job at Temple University because nice. as an alpha tester at DEC, I learned word processing. It was a, all in one was focused uh, okay. primarily around word processing. And so I got a job at Temple as what was called a data processing assistant. And it was essentially oh, a receptionist, phone answerer and word processor. And I'll tell you not to diss Temple, but they <laughs> thought of technical writing as clerical, as a word processing job, because huh. the job description was primarily to write documentation for their custom systems and to help doctors and others learn to use software. So to do basically Lotus 123 and WordPerfect mm. training. So I was doing technical training and technical writing um, in a job that was, oh, and answering the telephone. <laughs> that was a, that was a, like my other part of my job. I had to cover the phones for Temple University in the Office of Computing and Information Services on the Health Sciences campus, which covered the medical school, okay. the dental Health school, and the College of Allied Health and Pharmacy. So it was a very kind of a weird job. And so I decided, ooh, I'm a computer person. So I I decided to go to school at Temple because they gave me some credits for free. And I was going to be a computer science major now, not a biology major. I was going to do the computer <laughs> thing. And I had been at Temple for um, a, a year or so. And I was in the Temple library and I found technical communication, the journal. And I started to read oh, wow. it. And I thought, oh, my God, this is what I do. Like, there's a name for what I do. And it's not data processing assistant. Yeah, and it's not clerical. And it's not clerical. So um, I immediately joined STC, uh, changed my major to English, and volunteered to be the Delaware wow. Valley Chapter's newsletter editor. <laughs> oh, wow. So I got, I like, I, I went all in. I doubled down on, on wow, you've got an technical writing. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> and what I found was that um, almost everyone I met got into technical writing by accident. As I moved through my <laughs> career, I was working with these people who had bachelor's degrees in French and some <laughs> English majors and so on. But it was really bizarre um, as I started to work with these people. And, and I have a kind of a funny story. So I figured out what I was and I finished my English degree at Temple and I decided I was going to go to Drexel University, also in Philadelphia, for my master's degree in science and technical communication. And I oh, needed, okay. a, needed a, um, uh, a reference. I went to my bachelor's advisor 
And I said, um, I'd like a reference for grad school. And I told him what I was going to be doing. And literally, I think the man got tears in his eyes. And he said, (laughs) I'm so excited that one of our English graduates is going to do something besides waitressing. And I thought, wow, okay, that's like not, not, not a good thing. <laughs> so I uh, went to grad school and um, I, you know, it's kind of, kind of the way it's been. However, it's interesting because while I started out in technical communication, I don't call myself a technical writer anymore. I actually haven't for a very long time. And mm. so uh, in terms of where I got to where I am today, uh, I've always been pushy. <laughs> Anyone who knows me will know that, but I'm, I'm always pushing for more, something more, something better, something faster, but mostly better. And in my career, I found that during the first half of my career, at least, I left a, a whole bunch of jobs early, like maybe after a year or two. And I was always looking for that organization that was doing it the right way. <laughs> so whatever that meant, but what every organization yeah, I was in, that. you know, felt like it wasn't really the right way. And so eventually I actually became a consultant. This was many years ago. Okay. And I found that because I I wasn't really fitting in to tech pubs groups, right? That's what they were called mm, back in the day. Right. <clears throat> and so because I wasn't fitting into those tech pubs groups very well, um I becoming a consultant seemed like kind of a foregone conclusion. So fast forward a little bit. And um, back in late 2001, I joined IBM. And that began the second half Mm. of my career. And (laughs) by the time I joined IBM, I, I really felt that I'd figured out what a great technical communication organization needed to do. Right? How, how you, we could be great as technical communicators. Hmm. And by joining IBM, my thought at the time was, I'm going to see if this will scale. Right? And where, hmm. where better than huge IBM? <laughs> and originally, I intended to only stay there for a few years. So ask me how many years I was at IBM. <laughs> so, Andrea, can you tell us how many years you stayed at IBM? Fifteen and a half. Wow. That's, that's, wow. that's more than two or three. Um, and, and frankly, you know, fast forward that 15 and a half years, I realized that I had figured out the general model, I think, of what I considered great content to be. And by the time I got into mm. IBM, I had stopped, really stopped thinking about it as techcom or documentation, but content in the large. And IBM, with all of its various organization structures and politics and microcultures and roles and relationships and and so on, right? All of the the morass of diversity that is IBM, it had really given me decades worth of experience leading and driving that, you know, ideal model that I that I feel like I brought with me when I came into the company. Um, So. It's been uh, it's been kind of a wild ride, but I would I would say, you know, through the last 35 years, I've called myself all kinds of things from technical writer to information architect to content specialist. Let's Mm. see, strategic information architect, information strategist, information usability specialist, information experience strategist, content strategist. And when I left IBM, I was calling myself a content experience strategist, which I had been. Wow. Since I'm going to say 
probably 2004 or 2005, I'd been calling myself, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd been calling myself a content experience strategist. But what I realized hmm. looking back is that if you take the capital letters off the title, right, and you think about it as content it's, strategy, I've always been a content strategist, you know, trying to un deeply understand who the person is that I'm writing for um, or creating images for, developing video or audio for, because for me, content is not just words, um, <laughs> as well as, you know, really trying to understand the business that owns the product or service that I or my team mm. are covering and creating a vision for the experience that that person needs that's going to support not only their success, but also the business's goals. And then once you've got that, defining what the requirements are around content and interaction and visual design and technology and so on to be able to actually deliver that experience and then actually leading the implementation of that by getting the buy-in for the strategy and maintaining the <laughs> buy-in, which is the hard part. You can get them to agree up front, but getting them to remember what they agreed to last week is sometimes hard. Um, you know, developing systems, in, in my case, mostly models. I'm kind of a model model girl. Um, and educating the content teams to do the right things, educating and advising the business leadership to really create the right supportive ecosystem around the content teams so they can actually do the right things and follow the strategy and so on. So, I mean, I think that I've, like I said, always been a content strategist because those have always been the things that I've been interested in. And that's probably what caused me early on in my career to leave a lot of jobs because most of the tech comm organizations were, well, we go have a meeting at the beginning of the release with development and then we do what they tell us. And that was never enough for me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not a do what you, what you tell me to do kind of person. <laughs> so long answer to a short question. This is Content Content, a monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. This is episode number 21, recorded January 13th, 2018. Today's guest is Andrea Ames. She is the CEO of Idle Point Solutions in the great state of Maine. She is also the new editor of the Society for Technical Communications Intercom Magazine. Andrea, I have to admit, is <laughs> I, this is my second fanboy moment on the podcast because Andrea has been an inspiration of mine for a long time. Um, she's I just I finally got to meet her this year and we were like old friends. So it's awesome. So uh, I am been really excited to have Andrea on the podcast. Andrea, sorry to embarrass you, but welcome. How are you? <laughs> That's so funny. I was just sitting here laughing and I remember when I met you. I remember when I met you and, and you said, oh, and you, you were getting very excited. And I thought, you do a podcast. I just started uh, learning about podcasts. I'm so excited to meet you. <laughs> so I think we were kind of like, even though I didn't know you, I was also right. fangirling. So I think it was kind oh, of mu mutual fanning. <laughs> yes, you're like, I know your name. And like, oh, yeah, I follow you on Twitter. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <so>. Exactly. <laughs> Well, it's good to talk to you. How is how's everything in the great state of Maine other than Chile? Maine, uh, actually a little warm today, uh, but uh, oh. it, it's awesome here. Uh, it, it's, it is the great state of Maine, and I love it. I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to get to spend more time here. 
Uh, I've been traveling a lot nice. the last year, so so I'm I'm hoping that's going to calm down a little bit. I, I have many many follow up questions based on what you've said, but it's a, you know <laughs> to go way back to what you said initially is that when you first started with teams that you know everyone came from different places and that you know just as part of this podcast, um, it's just interesting to see how many different ways and where different where everybody where everybody came from and the diff- their different backgrounds. And I was a uh, you know, I was a journalism major, so I was going to write for a newspaper, and all of a sudden they said, hey, you'd be good for this technical writing job. And I saw how much it pays, right. and I'm like, well, that sounds pretty good. So, you know, 23, <laughs> 24 years later, here I am. So um, it's interesting to uh, see how everything has changed in that time. Yes, and in fact, when I got to IBM, you know, their practice, hiring practice was – to hire people. IBM does a lot of hiring right out of college. It's a very constant, consistent program. But from a technical communication perspective, we hired some variants and backgrounds, but I would say most of the people we hired were coming out of actual degree programs in tech comm, either undergraduate or graduate. Yeah, we were, you know, we had a great reckon, reckon, we really recognized the value of hiring people who had that truly professional background. Mm, makes sense. That's not to say that people like me originally, you know, that we we weren't valuable because I feel like I was valuable even before I figured out what I did. Um, there, are, I think there are a lot of people who have the sort of the behavioral instincts and the and the the aptitude and mm. the passion to. Mm do the right thing, make people successful, et cetera. But I think that there's there's definitely a growing recognition of the professionalism of what we do. And that professional education, I think, does is it's telling that there are more programs and that more companies are hiring directly out of those professional programs. Well, that's interesting that you say that. And one of the things I think about is, and going back to you know one of the things that you said, um, you know, how you started and technical writing was a clerical job and it was a you know, word processor or whatever. And then, you know, over the course of your long career, you've had different names, whether it's technical writer or content strategist or content experience. And I wonder, you know, especially after um, LavaCon this past fall that you and I and yet you were a, a keynote speaker at, um, you know, I heard so many different titles and names for what we do. And I'm wondering if it's getting to be too much. And I wonder if it, it's you know, if people are, you know, companies or businesses are saying, well, I don't know what I need. So let me just pay for the cheapest guy on the block kind of thing. So do you have any insight to that, especially now that you're kind of on your own? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, let me let me go on just a, only a slight tangent and <laughs> probably a, a major rant, um, especially when you think about content strategy and the content strategist sort of position. I see a ton of evidence that the content strategist hiring portion of our industry doesn't really understand what content strategists are. (laughs) And so um, just a specific example of what you're talking about, I did some job searching over the last year or two before making the final decision to go back into business for myself and leave IBM. And the job content strategy, um, the postings for those often mention writing as a primary task. Hmm. Now I can't tell you how long it's been since I wrote (laughs) as a primary part of my job. I mean, I do a lot of writing, but not as a primary part of my job and the kind of writing, actually I'm kind of a PowerPoint jockey, right? (laughs) Because I spend most of my time 
uh, I spent most of my time at IBM trying to influence other people and convince them to do things, right? And so usually that was mm. in the form of presentations oh, and okay, right. sp- speeches and that sort of thing. So I even interviewed some with some companies on the phone, and I only interviewed with the ones who didn't list writing as a primary uh, task of the job. But even the ones who didn't always asked about it on the phone. And now I'm not saying that content strategists should not be consummate experts in content, right? I mean, I absolutely consider myself a, a content expert, including in my particular focus is writing. That's where I come from. Okay. I'm not a very good visual content creator. Mm. Um, I'm not, I, I do some interaction design, but for the most part, my communication is really writing. And so that's absolutely a table stakes skill. But content strategy is not a writing role in an enlightened organization. Mm. And so mm. I, I think getting back to what you're saying, <clears throat> I think that there's a couple things going on. One is, as we become more professional and our organizations recognize us as a more professional role, we also get into larger organizations and we get more specialized. Mm. And so we do have more roles. I mean, we're not not even talking about titles but writer versus editor versus information architect versus content strategist, to me, even if they're not role, not titles, they are quite unique roles, in a, especially in a big organization. And so I think there's a little bit of that going on. But yeah. I also think that, you know, companies and people who work in companies um, are very often... Uh, like crows and tinfoil, right? There's <laughs> like the newest, coolest, shiniest thing. And we do tend to try to chase after those things. So there's a little bit of, I think, title change that happens as a result of that. But I will tell you where most of my title changes came from. And I think this is a, a very, something very legitimate because it's, because I did it, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Um, I think this is legitimate. And that is, Businesses grow, mature, evolve. Mm. They see value in different things. And I think we need to grow, mature, and evolve. And if I were to pick one place where I think technical communicators have some challenges is in evolving their role within Mm. a company. And so where maybe we used to do a lot of writing, Mm. it may be that technical communication jobs are not so much about writing anymore. Not that they're necessarily about strategy or architecture either, but they may be more about content design, right? And what, so what does that mean? Um, How am I picking the right elements to present my content in, for example? That may be way more the job than writing sentences, <clears throat> so there may be more to my job that is about figuring out if something should be video or still image or words. Mm-hmm. I may spend more time on that. I may still consider myself a technical communicator. That's not even a content strategy job, really. It's a content design job. So there are a lot of different roles. And I think that a lot of what's happened where titles have changed is that people and the way we think about our own role within a company is evolving the same way the businesses are evolving. So mm. I saw when I started out my my career, I was absolutely a technical writer. I wrote software documentation mm-hmm. and that was all I did. Uh, somebody told me the system to write documentation about and I wrote documentation. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't 
think much about who it was for. Um, a little bit, obviously, but not to the extent of, wow, why don't we fix the UI rather than writing documentation? You know, I wasn't really mm. at that point. And there were a lot of people in the industry who weren't because it wasn't very easy and flexible to fix the UI. We had only right. certain <laughs> applications and a lot of it was still DOS based and, um, you know, green screen and so on. There just wasn't the flexibility. Well, as technologies have evolved and businesses have evolved and user expectations have evolved, my role has evolved. My And what I choose to call myself has evolved so that my business will recognize my value, right? Mm -hmm. Often that's where my title changes have come from is so that my business or my clients or customers will recognize my value. And so I think it's important that, you know, as we as we make these crazy title changes <laughs> and think about how our roles are changing, that we're maintaining some level of education with our organizations, that we're helping them understand, mm. like, why are you a content strategist now? You used to be an information architect. <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? Like, are you doing something different or are you just calling yourself something <laughs> different? Uh, you know, I mean, it's it, it can get, definitely get crazy, but I think that it's it can come from a lot of different places. And I think as an industry, it behooves us to help educate these customers, mm. the customers of ours, right? These other um, these other industries, the industries that hire us, tech and finance and medical and so on, to help them understand what what does it mean? What is it that we do? And I, I frankly, I think. Um, you know, I see STC playing a much bigger role in that in the future mm. and actually stepping up to play a bigger role in that. Oh, interesting. Uh, we should talk about that. But I, you know, all I can say, and I said it in the middle of that was amen, sister. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, um, the evolution of the technical writer is is holding a lot of people back. And I think I've probably railed about it enough on this podcast. But I know, you know, talking about title changes is like, you know, I'm basically still a technical communicator, but we went from the online training organization to the information architecture team, because that's a lot of what I'm doing. I mean, yeah, we're, you know, we're ingesting a lot of content, I guess, and, and formatting it and putting it in data. And, but a lot of it is architecture. Okay. How are the people going to access this? How is the search? How are they going to work with search? Cause we know that they all basically search and, you know, we've done analytics to see, okay, um, you know, what words are they using in their support tickets and can we address them and can we address their misspellings with hidden keywords on the page so that way something comes up. So, you know, that's all of that. I mean, people basically still call me a technical writer at work, but it's not, there's a lot more to it that you have to do yes. now. It's not just throwing pages over the wall and, <coughs> and throwing a, a manual out there or a PDF. It's, it's, uh, you know, you've got to be, like you said, you've got to support the team and the business goals. And you can't do that with saying, hey, my big metric this year was I wrote 150,000 words. Isn't that great? You know, management doesn't really care about that. They want to see how many topics or not topics, but, you know, how many people are using your stuff and how many support tickets are being returned. Or basically, you know, if you're talking about content marketing strategy, then, you know, how many sales and how many conversions do we have and what's our ROI? And I think a lot of people aren't getting that. And I think that's where... Um, you know, I think that's where we need to educate ourselves. Absolutely. In fact, um, I think that not only is this uh, idea of evolving a, a difficult one sometimes for technical communicators to kind of jump on board with, but I think that, you know, the things that you're talking about, to me, 
it's about thinking critically about what we do every day. And it's, <laughs> yes. you know, I, I mean, rather than just accepting, oh, I'm going to update blah manual for XYZ release, I'll go talk to the developers and see what changed. And then I'll go out to the software and I'll take some new screen caps, right? I mean, yeah, there may be some amount of that kind of work that needs to be done. But frankly, um, I always think, really, why am I doing this? So we updated <laughs> right. the software. Why haven't we eliminated the need for this part of the documentation? If we're updating the software, why don't we fix the UI so that we don't have to explain it to them? Right. Or yeah. why aren't we putting more um, better labels on the screen? Why aren't we putting more assistance in the product itself so they don't have to go out and look at a manual? So they're just mm. all these all these ideas. And in fact, back in 2000. I think it was 2005 or 2006 at IBM, um, I started this mantra and I got the, at the time there were, I think five or six information architects in my product group. And one of the others, she and I, basically we were complaining because we were leading these teams and we were frustrated about the fact that it was very much a, you know, we go ask development and we do what they say kind of a mentality. <laughs> And I said, how do we, like, it's a leadership problem. Like, how do we get these people to be leaders and and step up and so on? And I thought, you know what? It isn't even a leadership problem. It's just a problem between the ears <laughs> of not thinking enough, right? And just doing things by habit. And so I started this mantra. It was called Think More, Write Less. Mm. And we started educating the teams that we worked with about not just don't just do things because someone told you to do it. Even me, right. I'm your content strategist, right? Don't just do things because I told you it's the, the right thing to do. I'd rather have you confront me with a, a difference of opinion and say, hey, that's not really going to work for my part of our audience, right? I've worked with them. I've done usability testing with them. I've watched the way they work with our product. And I think it's going to work better if we do this other thing. I would much rather have someone really thinking about and basing what their the decisions that they're making on real data and insight about users than just following along with whatever someone tells them to do. And I think that that's a real um, that's really the crux of it. The crux of it is to stop. You know, it's like <laughs> stop, look, and listen right before you cross the street. So don't get hit by a bus. <laughs> think about whether this is really the right time to cross the street or not. And are you crossing in the right way? <laughs> and I think <laughs> it's the same, same basic idea is, and we, and I know it's really difficult. I mean, IBM over 15 years, 15 plus years, we evolved and often it was an ev evolution of more work, fewer people. Right. That's a very common evolution uh, or, reg or regression, you know, depending on how you think about it. And that can make it really difficult and make people feel like they don't have time to stop and think. But uh, I think it's really important because it can also mean you do less work. Right. If you stop and think yes. about what you're doing, it can actually mean doing the right thing, which might be less work than the wrong thing. And so I think it's always worth that, you know, there's the, like there's 10 seconds between, put 10 seconds between action and reaction, right? Or reaction and action. And if you can take that 10 seconds <laughs> and really utilize it to your advantage, you might not react in the same way. 
you might actually find a better way to do something. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it's um, the bane of our existence. But, you know, I think it's I think it's getting better. I feel really optimistic about it getting better. Well, I do. That's interesting. And you know what? I, I agree with your write less. And I'm trying to do that because what we've been finding is that all these teams have their their processes and their their documents or whatever in a SharePoint or a network share. And they've already got this out there. So we're thinking about ourselves as content aggregators instead of content creators where you've already got this stuff in here. So let's take it and let's clean it up and let's make it consistent. Let's put it in data so it's structured and put it in one centralized location so every team can use it. There's no duplication of effort and we're not creating stuff that people don't need just because we feel that we should be creating uh, a, you know, a topic about every screen kind of thing. So, you know, content curation, yes. it's a beautiful thing. I, I absolutely agree. <laughs> and you know, it's, you can't stop people from creating content. So you may as well have it governed and, and organized in the best way and consistent way possible and it's searchable and then that way other teams can leverage it that you think may not yes. think be able to use that so that's what we're doing at work and I'm trying to think about that like I said maybe less of a technical writer more of an information architect which is you know mm-hmm. which is something I really kind of enjoy I, I think that's awesome and and I will say that in in defense of not just writing content because that's what we do um, you know, I think that there's an, a, a management mandate there as well. In other words, I think sometimes our leadership perpetuates this idea that we're supposed to be writing content, even <laughs> as you say, if SMEs and others are, are writing content. And I think that um, my message to those people is you get what you reward. And so if you are mm. encouraging people to write more content then you will probably end up with a lot of crappy content. If you instead encourage people to create better experiences for customers or to make customers uh, successful in a specific way or something like that, or or if you uh, um, encourage them and incent them to maybe reduce content while making customers more successful because let's face it just as they didn't back in 1983 or whenever it was that i started in this uh in this field people don't want to read they want to get their job done (laughs) right and i don't know of too many people whose job is to read documentation my mantra that's not what they're getting paid for right my mantra is always (laughs) people aren't coming to our site because they have nothing better to do with their day exactly My um, uh, one of the other sayings that I developed at IBM was um, installation is not a user task and people do not jump out of bed in the morning saying, yes, I'm going to install some new software today. (laughs) I am super stoked about that. Um, That's not really what happens. What they're trying to do is get some kind of business value out of that software. Mm. So, yes, they'll have to install it. But you need to make that as quick and painless as possible because that is not the goal. That's not the value they're getting. And they're not getting value from the documentation either, only if it's really helping them to be even more productive with the software or the hardware or whatever your product is. Well, back in the day, to to that point, um, we had a product that I was working for for a company I was at for 12 and a half years. And they had basically I had to create a flash kind of 
interface for the configuration before they would even install anything. So you had to go run through this configuration thing, put in all these parameters, and then go in and install everything. It was just tedious and ridiculous. And I was like, you know, they they wouldn't listen. It was like, hey, this has got to be. It's like, no, you install the damn software, then you configure it, because then you've got a success point. People were like, it was just, right. you know. So, yeah. Yeah. Thinking more. Sometimes yeah. it's frustrating. <laughs> So another thing you talked about you I want to go back to was you called yourself a, a model girl. So you said you do a lot of content modeling. So can you tell me kind of what that means? I, I think of uh, content model in terms of, you know, in terms of data, whether it's concept, task or reference. Now, is that a form of modeling or are you talking about modeling in terms of video versus audio versus written content, you know, photos? I mean, it, or is it all of the above? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, um, so Dita is, in fact, a model, right? The idea of, or Dita inherently uh, supports a specific model, which is the concept task reference model. Mm-hmm. Um, so models are really a general way of thinking about something. Um, and for me, because that's kind of just the way my mind works, um, you can model just about anything. Um, you can systematize just about anything. Hmm. And so um, models help you systematize things. Systematize, systemi- systematizing or systemizing. <laughs> I like systematize. Systematizing <laughs> is more of an action-oriented thing and models are more conceptual. And so, um, so I like to model lots of different things. And um, one of them is actually... Uh, navigation, interaction, oh, okay. and the way people uh, interact with content. Okay. And so one of the models that um, uh, that I popularized, developed quite a bit of in conjunction with um, another information architect is something called the progressive disclosure model. Okay. And so it's really about how do we, is there a way to generalize how we disclose content to users when they're at particular points in use of the product. So for example, if I'm searching for information through Google, is there a way to progressively disclose that information to the user such that they can be successful with our product in achieving some task? If the user is in the product and they're trying to use the product to do that task, is there a way that we can progressively disclose that Mm -hmm. information to them that again will get make them successful at accomplishing that task. And so depending on just two examples of the entry points into a ways that you might progressively disclose content to someone, um, when you think about progressively disclosing that content, um, you can in fact generalize it. So if you think about how people use interfaces, the first thing they see is the labels on the screen. So it's the name of the of the of the window, it's the name of the the widgets that you're providing, etc. So labels, you can think of labels in a general way as kind of the first level or the first phase of progressively disclosing okay. content huh. to the user. Now, if I have to take an action to get more content, maybe there's uh, hover help on a field, or mm-hmm. I can get contextual help. Maybe that's the next layer or the next phase of progressive disclosure. So I can start to think about it not as the actual content like username and, you know, here's how to log in as a, as a help task. Okay. But instead, I can start to 
generalize that or abstract it huh. to label, hover help, help, you know, contextual help, uh, document, uh, uh, manual, etc. Right. And so there's different levels of content that I'm providing to them because they either don't know how to do this at the level of detail I'm providing to them. And so they need more information or maybe they're expert and what they need is an example so that they make sure they're doing it the right way, even though they know how to do it. Right. So there's, uh, there's multiple dimensions to that idea. Okay. Uh, but the, but the idea is that it doesn't even have to be the content itself. Like you can think of, um, you can think of a, a model for something like a tutorial, right? So you can generalize. It's got modules. It's got objectives. It's probably got a title. Maybe it has a scenario description for what the context is for what I'm going to teach you. Every module has a little tell them what I'm going to tell them and then tell them and then summary at the end to tell them what I told them. <laughs> Maybe the overall tutorial has a summary at the end. So I can kind of um, abstract what a tutorial is without writing a specific tutorial. Okay. And so uh. for me, this, this idea of modeling all these different kinds of things, whether it's you're modeling the content itself, you're modeling the interaction that the user has with the content, you're modeling the journey the users take. Okay. I mean, that's really mm. what user journeys are. They're models of the path that someone might take through a website or using a product or content journeys are, you know, through the content. If I can create a model for that, then what I can do is I can help my teams be more consistent and more efficient. And mm -hmm. I can also uncover where there are gaps, for example, between silos. So if I think about a content journey as a model, I can think about marketing, on one end, and I can think about tech support on the other mm, okay. with maybe documentation and training in between. And if I really think about that end-to-end -end journey, now I have a model and I can figure out, whoa, the marketing people are doing it this way. And when documentation picks up after the, con after the product's purchased, they're basically the content is describing a totally different universe than maybe what the, the uh, consumer thought they purchased, which would be bad. <laughs> And, and it's using a different scenario, let's say, in its examples than the training people are. And so now I'm kind of confused because this information is being presented in a different way. And so for me, models really help the content creators contribute content to something larger that is maintaining consistency for the user and giving them an experience that is enhancing their use of the product huh and enhancing their relationship with the company as opposed to confusing them or dropping them off cliffs. Hey, you bought the product. Great. Boom. We're done with you. Um, you know, that's not a great experience, <laughs> not a very nurturing experience. Right, yeah. And what, and what, you know, what we're seeing with more, um, online content with more online purchases. Um, in fact, IBM, we did some research at IBM, and this was four or five years ago now, so it's, I'm, I know it's changed and it's even uh, even smaller percentage. But at the time, only 22% of technology buyers were actually interacting with salespeople, <laughs> even with big enterprise products that cost a lot of money. Wow. 
They're doing all of their right. purchasing through content and trials. Mm. They try it out and they're looking at your content and they're looking at your technical content. They're looking at your documentation and they're really looking at your technical support content. Imagine you have 500 known problems and workarounds about some simple product. <laughs> that customer is probably going to think, hmm, I don't know. doesn't seem very robust. Maybe I'm not going to purchase that, that product. So I think there's really a lot that we can do from a modeling perspective that helps us bridge silos, that mm. helps us create better, better experiences for our customers, that helps us be more consistent, that helps us internally be more efficient so that as more work, fewer people becomes the evolution, uh, we can rise to that, right? We can actually say, okay, I can do not just as much work as needs to be done, but better quality work, more consistent work that I know is contributing to the success of my client if I use these models, even though I have fewer resources than I used to have. So the key is creating a great model, right? And a great model is a validated model. So having someone that understands how to create a model, having someone that understands how to validate it and make sure that it's really a model that's going to make your customers successful in whatever area you're modeling. And then it means having someone who understands how to translate that model into a useful tool for your writers or your information architects or others. So yeah, it's, wow. I love it. I love it, wow. but it's, it's big and, and complicated. Yeah, I sometimes. Say, there's a lot, a lot more to it than, uh, <laughs> than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, uh, I for very briefly worked with, uh, Whitney, Chris, uh, Whitney Quisenberry, and, mm -hmm. uh, she gave me the concept of bite snack meal, which is like, Oh, progressive disclosure is kind of same thing, but you're talking about it like yes. at a huge macro level where I'm thinking about this is micro level. It's really, uh, wow. I, you know. And you can have models at both levels and most organizations start with them at more of a micro level okay. because most organizations don't have information architects and they don't have content strategists. And those tend to be the people who are modelers who tend to look at things and say, why am I doing this twice and doing it in two different ways? If I create right. an abstract way to think about it, I can do it 50 times much more effectively and much more consistently. And so without those people, you have a lot of writers who are all kind of writing in parallel the same kinds of things and coming out with slightly different ways of presenting that information versus having, you know, every every tutorial look and feel like mm. the same thing mm. and sounding like it comes from the same right. company, which is always nice. <laughs> Right. So one, uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you was you had uh, 15 and a half years at IBM, I think you said. And you, when you went in there, you said you knew what a great tech com org needed to do. Now, how, how at the end of your time, how successful do you think you were with implementing that model? Did it go the way you anticipated or? Um, you know, that's a great question. I mean, I think it was varied. Okay. And like I said, I think what IBM really taught me was that it depends. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like such a, um, a, a consulting cop-out <laughs> to say that, but it really, when you're talking about um, making organizations work, it's so varied in terms of the kinds of issues that organizations have. And yes, they're, they're very similar, but when you bring the combination of, you know, too few resources is my issue, and the executive who can't wait to ax the rest of the tech comm group 
versus hmm. too few resources is my issue and the executive who wants to build a strong content organization because they see content as a very valuable business asset, the solution to that problem is wildly different. And hmm. the um, and hmm. all the little things that, that come in around that problem um, make micro changes to the way that you might try to address it. And so um, at IBM, because the, the, the business units operate very autonomously, okay. they really do act like little mini companies and not so many. <laughs> so <laughs> right. Those organizations are huge. So <clears throat> little independent companies and they have their own culture. They have their own politics. They have their own organization structure. The difference between a centralized and a decentralized content team, for example, mm. can make a huge difference in the way that you can incent people, in the way that you can grow content leadership. Uh, my organization, for example, was centralized when I was in a product organization. And my I was able to achieve a level within IBM called senior technical staff member. It's a level that is one level above where your management team can can promote you. So in other words, I had to fill out a, a dossier. I had to put a package together. Um, I had to have references. Oh, wow. And then a, a group of technical people vetted me mm. and decided if I was worthy. So it's really a technical designation as opposed okay. to a promotion. And uh, even though it's a level above uh, uh, my la my former level, it's a j just a totally different thing. Now, if I had not had part part of that, let me take a step back. Part of that technical designation includes having a role at the right level of scope for that designation. So I had to be able to operate at a higher mm. or a broader scope level than I had at my prior okay. in my prior role. If I was in a set decentralized organization, that would probably not be possible because I would be a technical communicator mm. or in IBM's case, an information developer who was reporting into, let's say, a development manager, as opposed to an information developer reporting into an information development manager mm. who was reporting into an information development director. Now that person has enough people and enough products and enough scope herself, in that case it was a woman, so that I could have an equivalent level of scope. And that was required for the level that I was promoted to. So if I had been in a decentralized organization, that wouldn't be the case. Mm. Now, how do you get someone who's got broad scope and wants to do content strategy or information architect our information architecture in a team of five writers reporting to a development manager. Probably mm, that's right. going to be a very small role, a very small percentage of the time. And frankly, you know, information architecture more so than content strategy. But in the end, writing is going to trump everything. What are you producing? Hmm. You know, are you mm. getting all the documentation done on time for the release? That's going to be the primary responsibility where my primary responsibility was how am I enabling the 250 other content people in this organization to create their content that is making our customers more successful, that uses you know fewer resources 
and creates better content, more content that's better, et cetera. That was my job. I was supposed to figure that out and then <laughs> implement systems and models and so on okay. that would help people do that. I mean, you're, you're not going to get that same level of engagement at the strategic level in a smaller decentralized yeah, group. Okay. So all of those things, the, the structure of the organization and the culture and the way the roles are defined and all that kind of stuff is all going to factor into um, how you're able to do the right thing. And in my world, doing the right thing requires that you think about what you're doing and that everybody's on a similar page in the hymn book, at least similar, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you, everybody, you know, the, the best content experiences are integrated end to end. They're enabling customers to be successful with your product. They're not just saying type your name in the name field in the documentation, for example. And so to have that level of integration and so on, you need to have a strategy. To have a strategy, you need to have somebody who knows how to do that and has that role assigned to them and has the support to do that. And how you get there is different in every organization because it depends what you're starting with, what kind of politics and organizational constraints they have, how enlightened the management team is, you know, all of those things are going to play heavily into how you get from zero to 60. And so I felt like I came in with this knowledge of the right, the right way to do things. <laughs> and my, my view of that hasn't really changed at the model level, right? Okay. Know your customer, know mm. your business, et cetera. Think that hasn't changed <laughs> in 16 years. And yet I have to say my results were inconsistent. <laughs> and I think a lot of that had to do with um, how well uh, the how well the organization received the input from somebody who was not in their organization, for example. So IBM was very matrixed. I was in a corporate organization. I had mm. no positional authority over anyone on the team that I was perhaps helping or advising. So how how open they were mm. to getting that advice, okay. um, wow. how much their senior executives bought into what they were trying to do. And certainly I tried to help them with that. But there's just so many variables. So I think the team I came from, which is a team I spent the most time in, we, uh, my director was extremely focused on building leadership in the content space. So we had a lot of information architects. We spent a lot of time trying to build that capability. And they were really what we called strategic information architects, which was essentially content strategists. Hmm. And so we had people who had full-time jobs doing that work, more than one hmm. doing that work. Hmm. And that was, you know, made a big difference in terms of the, the speed with which that organization matured, in my view, okay. matured, and so on. So it's really, um, I would say my results were spotty. Um, and... That had to do primarily with organizational things. Mm. The organizations who were bought in made great progress. Okay. Um, the organizations who weren't, you know, not so much. And that was usually an organization thing. I mean, was not okay. a, an individual people thing. Fair enough. And it's interesting. Um, uh, DitterWriter.com, Keith Stingili Roberts has a, um, a two-part interview with uh, Michael Priestley and Don, and Don Day about the origins of Ditta. And it's, I mean, if you read it, it's, it sounds contentious. And I guess it's that whole thing you're talking about with the different business units and the organization's goals and everything. And it was, I mean, 
if you read it, you're like, holy crap, how did, did it come together and be the thing that it is now? Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was a fascinating story and I'll link to it in our show notes. Um, but I thought it was, it, you know, it, it's interesting to hear that, you know, you're kind of consistent with what they're saying that organizational things is always, uh, you know, where people had butt heads and where, you know, your, uh, you know, your success is, is, is made or lost, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, um, uh, one of the frustrations for me in our field is how technology focused we tend to be. If we have a problem, we go try to find a tool or some <laughs> technology to fix it. And <clears throat> what's most interesting about that is the success of implementing that tool or technology is going to be dependent on people. And probably the original problem was a people problem. So we've, we're now kind of compounding the work to implement a tool or a technology to solve a problem because the people are going to potentially keep us from being able to do that in the most efficient way. And yet the problem that we were having was probably more of a process problem or a people problem. Mm. And when you have people problems <laughs> and process problems and you add technology, all you do is oh, magnify God. those problems, right? You're just making them bigger and worse unless you figured out how to solve the people problem, the culture problem, the process problem or whatever, you go in and apply those technologies or those tools and you really magnify the, the issue, unfortunately. Hmm. All right. Well, why don't we talk about now, um, you know, tell us about your new company and what's it kind of like going from 15 years at IBM to basically <coughs> a, a new startup? Well, I, I'll tell you, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> um, so my company, um, Idle Point Group, is uh, essentially at the moment, it's a consulting company. Okay. And I focus on two things. I focus on organization design for content organizations hmm. and content leadership development. Because I think that um, even content strategy, right, for you to have content a content strategy, for it to be successful and to, for people to be able to implement it, you need the right ecosystem around you mm, and you need the about. right leadership, right? So for me, I'm trying to go to the root of the, you know, what's really the root cause of our inability to create the kind of content that we want to or for our inability to support our customers in the way we want to and so on. And that's all about organization and leadership. And so um, that's, that's really the focus of my company. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> getting it started is... Really fascinating. So I, I mentioned that I became a consultant and I did consulting for about eight years before I joined IBM. And I was an independent consultant. It was just me. I was a, you know, solo person. And um, it was a different time then, Ed. I'm going to make myself sound really old. But it was definitely a different time. Um, you know, two, 19, late 1990s, uh, mid-1990s, no Facebook ads, oh, no uh, Twitter Right. I mean, it's a t it's like a completely different business landscape now. And even if you're not an online business, you are an online, yeah, you have to be online. marketer right, of yes. your business at a minimum. And so um, I I have to say that I, um, you know, after 35 years, you have moments where you feel like you've topped out. You've learned it all. Mm. You're getting bored. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so when I decided to go back into business for myself. I took a step back and said, we're not in Kansas anymore, Andrea. This is not your 1999 business. What does that mean? 
And I said, you know, I'm going to approach this the way I approach every technical problem, and that is tabula rasa. Mm. I am going to go into this with a total beginner's mind. I've never been in business before. I certainly haven't been in business this way. Um, and so I'm going to just start over. And uh, I did. I started looking, following some what I would call my virtual mentors in online business and online marketing. I started following some podcasts pretty religiously. Mm. I took some online courses and um, and decided, you know, I am learning business mm. 20, 2017, 2018 style from the beginning. And it has been, uh, well, I think all the technical writers who are technical writers in their DNA will understand this. It has been awesome because I have learned so much. Mm. And I'm the, you know, a, a, a person who's got tech, tech calm in their soul is, I think of like a perpetual learner. Someone right. who, if you're not learning something every day, you're kind of, you start to get a little twitchy. <laughs> and so I have just loved this. I mean, I can't even tell you, I've loved it so much. I have a couple of business coaches. Um, I, I just, I kind of went all in. I doubled down, doubled down on this idea that I wanted to have a really successful business. And I wanted to maybe do some things differently than the way I had been thinking about it. So as I got into it and started listening to podcasts and taking courses and so on, I thought, you know, there's actually more ways and in some ways better ways to get my thought out there than consulting. So I am doing consulting, but I am also in the process of launching an online course. Oh, cool. And I, once I get my course launched, I'm going to be launching a membership group. In fact, probably two membership groups. One for individuals, content strategists who are, who either want to be, people who either want to be content strategists or are content strategists, want to up their game, want to build their leadership skills and even the more mechanical content strategy skills. Um, and then another membership that's really a corporate membership group. So hmm. companies who want to, really up their game around their organization and what will make that successful. And so um, I, I want to impact as many people as possible. And I'll tell you just a short story that's not too much of a divergence. Um, when I left IBM, IBM actually offered to uh, move me to Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, I didn't want to move. And mm. so I resigned. Uh, and one of the things that I was thinking about at the time was, should I get another job or not? And I mentioned that I did some some looking around. And I realized that I had a pretty big impact at IBM. Mm. Uh, lots and lots of content people at IBM. And I was in a corporate team, so I basically had the potential to impact every content person and a lot of non-content people at IBM, which is a lot of people. And I said, really, I want to impact as many content people as possible. So my my crazy business vision, maybe drug induced, we, we're not going to tell, but my crazy business vision is to impact 1 million content people, wow. whether they know they're content people or not, and impact them in a way that it is raising the value and the impact of our industry. So it's people are better understanding the value content has to their business. 
Um, content people are being paid more. The skills we bring to the table are being valued more. We're not the first ones on the chopping block when mm. layoffs time comes. You know, all of these things, I, we need, I feel that we need our industry to kind of up the ante on ourselves, right? We need to be out there demonstrating more value. And I want to help people do that. I know there are a lot of content creators who feel they're more valuable in their gut and don't know how to articulate that, don't know how to demonstrate that. So that's something that I want to bring to them is the the mechanics of how do you how do you tell your your customer or your company just how much value you're adding to them mm. in real terms like revenue or customer retention mm-hmm. um, things that make sense to the business. So my my passion <laughs> is really around helping organizations and leaders okay. to help them raise raise all the boats, right? We need to raise the water line, yeah. raise all the boats. And and that may mean, you know, getting kind of radical in our businesses and really getting radical in our teams to be fo- really maniacally focused on our value and how we demonstrate that. And that may mean changing the way we do some things, changing the way we're organized, um, focusing on some different things. And those are the kinds of things that I would like people to get out of my courses and my, obviously my consulting, uh, but my courses and my membership group as well. And I see those as ways to touch touch more people, hopefully with even more value. Nice, nice. So um, I know also this is uh, the other part of the, th- the what you're doing now is uh, you're coming out with a podcast. So um, can you... Tell us a little bit more about that, and uh, hopefully you don't take all my users or my listeners away. <laughs> oh, I suspect I won't take your listeners away. Um, so, yeah, my podcast that's coming out, uh, keep your fingers crossed, February 1st is my launch date. Oh, cool. Um, uh, my podcast that's coming out is called The Content Hacker Podcast. Nice. And it is, um, you know, I want to have, have a revolution. I, I really want to... Um, stir, stir some people up. So it's a, uh, (laughs) it's a solo podcast. That's the primary, um, mode, if you will. It's not an interview podcast, although I probably will do some interviews. Um, but I'm going to hopefully not spend too much time ranting, but instead hopefully bring some really valuable ideas and actionable ideas and ways of implementing those ideas to content folks so that they can raise their value and help their organizations change and move those organizations to a place where their businesses respect them more, value their output more, and so on. Cool. Well, I'm going to be, uh, you know, February 1st, February 2nd, I'm going to subscribe and uh, listen to it on my commute on the train. So uh, looking forward to that. Can you um, tell us where we can find your podcast when it comes out? Well, it will be, uh, you know, on iTunes for sure. Okay. And I suspect anywhere that you can get an iTunes podcast, like I get my podcast through Overcast. That's my podcast um, 
app. Okay. So I get my podcast through Overcast. Uh, but I, I believe anywhere you can get an iTunes podcast, you'll be able to access it. Excellent. 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 So I think along the lines of this, you know, starting your own business, I know you said you've impacted a lot of people at IBM, but you're also a, a frequent presenter and a keynote speaker at, <laughs> at LavaCon, of course, Information Development World, uh, Intelligent Content Conference, and even Content Marketing World, which I attended two years ago. Unfortunately, uh, you weren't there at that time, but... Um, it's interesting. I mean, do you think that that or how did you get, I guess, into that speaking and evolve into a keynote speaker? And do you think that having that, I guess, that name out there has helped you uh, transition to your own company? So, yes, I do. And in fact, um, so one of the one of the people that I've been following for a long time, but I'm even more rapidly digesting his stuff now is Michael Hyatt. And I don't know if folks are familiar with Michael Hyatt. But he's a leadership development guy. And um, he started out as a CEO, or he started out working at Thomas Nelson Publishers. And he became CEO. And one of the things that he um, noticed is, as authors came to him and wanted to get books published, uh, one of the things that was causing him to turn them away and causing publishers to turn authors away was the fact that they didn't have what he calls a platform. And that is a following, essentially. Do you have an audience? Are there people out there who uh, are willing to buy a book to hear what you have to say, basically? Are you a mm, thought leader in some way? Okay. And <clears throat> one of the things that I'm in the process of actively doing right now is transitioning my platform from an in-person speaking platform, because that's how most people know me, mm. to more of an online platform, to having my podcast, to having... Mm a bit of a blog, to having a website, to having a Facebook page, um, et cetera, tweeting, tweeting more than just from conferences, which is not <laughs> the way I tweet today. So I think that um, absolutely having an audience through speaking has definitely helped me to launch my business. And in fact, last year when I started telling people that I was starting my own business, I had a number of people saying, yay, now you're available, right? So there, I think there were people who were thinking, gee, it's too bad you work for IBM. I'd mm. love to get some of that in my business. <laughs> um, so so that's really cool. And I think it, it definitely helps from the perspective that, I mean, people kind of know who I am and they know what I'm like. And uh, I suspect I'm somewhat polarizing. I have some really strong opinions. And so people probably either love me or hate me, which I'm, <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with. But I think that it means that as I go out as a consultant and I'm talking to people, they, the people who are talking to me are people who have figured out, hey, I heard you give a talk and I love what you had to say. So, <clears throat> so I think that is uh, very, very helpful. And if someone wanted to go out and start their own business Speaking is certainly one way of developing that platform. I will say it's a, been a little bit of a hindrance, kind of rolling back to what I said before about business being totally different. And whether you're an online business or not, you're definitely marketing your business online. And so being a speaker uh, uh, in person is somewhat limiting. My audience mm. is limited today mostly to the people who could afford to travel and pay for a mm. conference and come out to see me speak and attend a workshop or watch a keynote or whatever. Um, now, I love speaking. And in fact, that's why I decided that even though my background is writing, 
my primary platform is probably going to be the podcast because I can write, but I love to talk because (laughs) as you figured out and I love speaking and I, and I feel like, um, there's so much more connection that someone can make with me through my tone of voice. And clearly when I get passionate, I'm Mm. like, you know, I'm speaking in all capital letters and, and I feel like I can't communicate as much of that in, in my blog. And, and for me, that's part of what makes me me. I get really worked up about things and I get really enthusiastic about things. And I want people to know that part of me because I think that's, again, part of what makes me me and part of what makes me successful at the things that I enjoy doing. In fact, I had a conversation with a potential client recently last month. And one of the things I said was, well, you know, you know that VP who's saying, gee, I can't wait to lay off the other half of the tech pubs group. (laughs) That's the guy I want to talk to because I get a kick out of changing his mind, right? (laughs) Showing him how, no, he wants to protect the people writing the content. And this guy looked at me and he was just shaking his head thinking, you are like a crazy person. (laughs) Who wants to do that? And so I think that that's not that part of me and that aspect of the way I do business is not going to come out in a blog. It's going to come out more in a podcast. Mm -hmm. It definitely comes out in speaking. So, um, so I think speaking isn't necessarily for everyone. And I would say that a really important thing for someone who's going to start their own business is to figure out what is your platform? Is your platform Hmm. a blog? Is your platform publishing lots of books? Is your platform a podcast or face-to-face live speaking? Maybe some combination, but there's probably kind of a primary way that feels right to you, that feels really genuine to you, that is the right way to communicate with your audience. And so if you want to speak, if you get a kick out of that, then I think that's great. I would also find other ways, more online ways Hmm. that you can leverage that. And the other thing I'm planning to do is um, I've got a Facebook page and I'm going to start, I need to get my podcast in the can, but I'm, I'm going to start um, doing regular Facebook lives because again, I don't oh. mind being in front of people. Huh. I, I don't mind video. I don't love it, <laughs> but uh, I, I like speaking a lot better because I can't see myself. <laughs> <laughs> speaking in person is way better because you can't really see yourself. So you're not critically going, what's that weird oh, lump God, in my hair? Uh, <laughs> that weird lump I can't like keep my hands off of. Um, but I, but I do feel like that's a way that I can connect more genuinely and more, um, closely with people. And I think that's the way I'm going to have an impact is finding, you know, who those people are that are attracted to that, attracted to me. Mm. So I think if you, you know, if you want to start your own business and you are a talker like me and you enjoy speaking and you're not afraid to get up in front of people, I think that's awesome. Um, I think it's it's not necessarily for everyone. And mm. so figure out, like, why do you want to speak? What are the things, what are your business goals? And then figure out, it's like any communication problem. What's the right medium? What's the right venue for you to meet those goals? And so it's just like a documentation problem. Is mm. it documentation? Is it help? Is it a video? Is it uh, an image? An animation, you know, what what is the right way to achieve the goal that you're trying to accomplish? And then if you do decide it's the right thing, um, you know, I encourage people to just do it. Pick mm. a topic and jump in. And, you know, it's it's important to have a topic you know a lot about. 
but it's really, really helpful if you really care about it. Mm. So I wouldn't pick something you just know about and that you're not passionate about, that you don't have a strong opinion about. Um, and if you can't think of anything, pick an experience. What have you done or what has your team done that you feel mm. really passionate about that you can share something about? Like what happened? Did it succeed? Did it fail? I'll tell you what, the failure stories are dramatic. Yeah. You'll really, I mean, even if you in the end succeed, you know, find some ways to weave in the ways you didn't succeed. Um, what did you learn? You know, those are great stories to take to a stage and to talk to people about. And there are a lot of safe places to start, like a local STC meeting. Great place mm. to start. That's how I got my start. Right. Started out at local meetings, gave presentations, built confidence. People told me, you know, they really enjoyed my presentations. I figured out what was working. And then I just took that to bigger and bigger stages like STC mm. or LavaCon or ICC or Content Marketing World. I mean, it's just, it's it's a growth in the way that, you know, anything is kind of a growth process. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of followed a similar line. I just started just a few years ago presenting and I did one for my local chapter and then I did it at the uh, the STC Philly Regional Conduit Conference. Uh, did that again this year or last year. And uh, now I'm going to be also <coughs> presenting my data-driven content presentation to the STC IDC, sorry, Vicky, um, STC IDC IDL SIG. I think, yeah, I think it's the oh, IDLC. Okay. So uh, I'm going to be doing that, uh, I believe, in February. So uh, it's interesting how these all things all go. And, of course, with this podcast, now I'm doing the LavaCon podcast as well. So, you know, of course, you and I, I think, are pretty extroverted. So we like talking and we like getting out there and don't mind presenting. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I like your idea of finding your platform. I'm like, oh, I just realized, okay, my platform. Because like you, I really didn't want to blog that much. It's like, okay, here's my platform. I'm presenting and, and blogging or blog, podcasting and then uh, maybe some more webinars. We'll see. So that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's that's really the way to go. And if you do feel like it's your thing but you're afraid, like a lot of people. Oh, God, I'm scared in to fact, hell when yeah. I go up on stage <laughs> or present. Right. As it turns out, and in fact, I was just at a Michael Hyatt workshop last week, and he said um, the number one fear among people is public speaking, and the number two fear is death. So oh, literally, Jesus. people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. And, um, you know, he, Michael Hyatt, I mentioned him several times, and I really can't emphasize enough how inspirational he's been for me, but, but also how actionable the stuff he talks about is. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And if you are a person who feels like because you're introverted or you're shy or have bad stage fright, you can't speak, but you feel like that's really the right way to connect with the people you want to connect with, I would say, um, and in fact, I'll dig out for the show notes. Michael has, Michael Hyatt has a, uh, has had a couple of podcasts oh, cool. and he has one where he talks about his own really bad stage fright and how he overcame it. And now he influences hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions of leaders through mm. speaking and his podcasts and so on. I mean, he's, he's a fixture in the leadership area and um, hugely, hugely influential. And if he had never overcome his stage fright, people wouldn't even know him. Right. Uh, and so I think that if you really feel in your 
deepest heart of hearts that that's the way to go, you should still try to do it, right? Mm. Um, because it, you can overcome those fears. I frankly, uh, I don't know if it makes me like a, some kind of sociopath or something, <laughs> but I have never been afraid to get up and talk to people mm. uh, in, in front of a lot of people. In fact, the more people and the less well I know them, the easier it is to talk to them. Okay. How oh, weird is that? No, that makes sense, uh, I think. <clears throat> So I think, um, yeah, I'll, I'll dig out the Michael Hyatt podcast where he talks about his own fear. It's a very, very interesting story mm. and how he overcame it uh, by basically just putting a different, different story in his head and, uh, and leveraging his fear. He actually leverages oh, it and uses it to become a better speaker. So mm. yeah, it's it's really fascinating. We'll make we'll make Michael Hyatt followers out of all your podcast <laughs> followers. <laughs> Sounds good, Michael. You can uh, send up the the uh, the checks here. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm the one who brought it up. I think he should be sending them to me. That's right. No. <laughs> we'll send it to Andrea, courtesy of Andrea Ames. There you go. <laughs> yeah, my problem is is that I psych myself out before I go on, and then as soon as I step on, and I start as I start talking, I'm usually fine. Last year, I I freaked out. I don't know why I got myself over anxious, but usually it's like I, right before I go on, I freak out, and then I'm like, as soon as I start, I'm like, oh, this is fine, and everything goes fine. It's just crazy. So it's just a yeah. mental thing. I guess I got to meditate more before I go on and before I present. <laughs> Meditation is a good thing. Yes, yes. I'm doing more of that in 2018. The other, I think one of the last things I wanted to talk to you about was another exciting uh, development in your life, your, your life and your career is that you are now the editor of the Intercom magazine for STC. And it's funny because when it was first on Twitter announced, I'm like, oh, congratulations, because I thought that you were just the guest editor because I had just submitted, I had just been published in Intercom and worked with a guest editor in Michael Opstieg. And then you're like, oh, congratulations, that's going to be a great episode. And then everyone's like, uh, no, it's she's the whole editor. I'm like, oh, that's pretty damn big. So so <laughs> congratulations. I think that's awesome. Um, and can you tell us how that came about and uh, you know what you, what you would like to do with your editorship? Well, first, thank you very much. Um, I've actually been the guest editor a couple of times. I was the guest editor just in for the September October issue. Okay, I think it was, this, or maybe it's just the September issue of 2017, around the business value of content. Imagine that <laughs> surprise! Uh, <laughs> surprise! Um, and so, actually, I think that <coughs> <coughs> sorry, um, I think that episode or that issue in part started the ball rolling a little bit okay. because, um, as you know, Liz uh, Poland is now the CEO of STC and she mm. was the editor of Intercom. Right, okay. And those are two very big jobs. And while Liz is clearly a superstar, hmm. uh, I don't see her making herself crazy and trying to do both of those things right. at the same time. <laughs> so they, uh, STC and the Intercom Advisory Committee, had basically been on a search for the for the editor, and uh, they had a few people applying and so on, and they just weren't finding the right fit. And one of the things that I did in the business value of content issue is I brought in some people to write articles who are not SDC members; they're not even technical writers. I brought in some folks who are in the content industry, mm. but. Maybe content marketing. I had, uh, you probably know Colleen Jones. Oh, She's yeah. the CEO of C Content Science. She uh, authored an article about data, content-driven 
uh, or data-driven content development and really understanding metrics and how to get value or understand the value of your content. So I, um, and she's just one example. And for me, uh, you know, I think Intercom, by the way, has, I mean, it's, when I was, <laughs> when I was a, a, a child <laughs> and a, f a first member of, of STC, the Intercom was a newsletter. Oh, geez. And comparing black and white, you know, saddle-stitched, 12-page <laughs> newsletter that came in the mail to glossy, high-end, you know, fantastically valuable magazine that Intercom has become, um, it, it's night and day. And, you know, I credit Liz with, I, I, I won't say all of it, but most of that. Mm. I mean, she has been an amazing mm. editor and is a very, very hard act to follow. Mm. Um, but she, but the, the magazine is obviously geared toward STC members and the tech com industry. And we often pull a lot from our own pool. So we have a lot of people in STC and a lot of people in TechCom who are writing articles, and that's fantastic, and that is certainly not going to change. However, what I'd like to do is give people a glimpse outside the cubicle. So, mm. you know, if you spend a lot of time talking to other TechCom people and going to STC meetings and reading about other TechCom things, that's awesome. I want to expose you to other things as well. So... In the in the guest issue, or the guest edited issue last year, that was something I tried to do. And when Liz and Saul Carliner, who were heading up okay. the search for the new editor, uh, he's the chair of the Intercom Advisory Committee. When they were kind of thinking about, you know, how do we kind of inject some new voices and different energy and more thought leadership in some new areas into Intercom, they came and asked me, hey, would you be interested in this? And I thought, this is huge, right? I think Intercom has achieved a level of eminence in our field. And I think if we can get that out to more people and start infusing it with even more thought leadership from maybe some things that people would consider to be fringe areas hmm. uh, that are touching on content but have an impact on us, make us think about how we do what we do in a different way, then I think that's huge. And so in talking with Liz and, and Saul, um, I said, well, these are the kinds of ideas that I would have. So, for example, the first issue, the January-February issue, is about the future of TechCom. And we've got some people who I suspect most readers will never have heard of. Hmm. Um, Jack Molisani is the guest editor oh, nice. for that issue. And it's great. It's, um, it's going to come out shortly. Um, maybe we'll be out by the time your, your podcast gets released. And the, the issue after that is about um, creating a great content organization. Hmm. So it's going to be about Ooh. roles and you know all these weird fuzzy things that we don't talk about very much. We tend to focus on the technologies and the processes and the things that we can define really clearly. Um, but I think the, some of these other things, as I said earlier, have a great impact on our ability to do the things we want to do well. Um, and so we're going to have an issue on 
the state of education in TechCom. Okay. We're going to have an issue on the relationship between content and design. We're going to have an issue on, um, let's see, I should get my notes out here. <laughs> uh, you can go out to the Intercom website. I, in fact, I'll uh, dig out that URL for you as mm. well. Oh, I have it. org. Yes. And there's um, under the editorial piece, there's the editorial calendar, which oh, okay, right. talks about the dates that things are due, and it has all the themes. And so um, the... Obviously, we will publish articles that folks are sending to us, and I hope people will send articles to us that are not necessarily completely matched with the theme. If you're writing something and it does match up with the theme, we're going to try to rearrange things so that we can get it into the right issue. But if it doesn't, doesn't fall into one of the themes, that's totally fine. We will still have uh, articles that mm. are not necessarily on theme so that we can you know, publish all the good stuff that the uh, the STC members and non-members who are in TechCom are uh, thinking about because there's a lot of good stuff going on. And the more we can share that stuff, mm. the, again, we're, riot, we're raising the water level, right? <laughs> we're bringing all the boats up. And that's really, I think, you know, my I've been an STC member since 1986, wow. I think. And I have done everything from chapter newsletter to STC president. And I continue to contribute my time and my energy to STC and STC members in our industry because I think that is the way we raise the water level, right? We, mm. We, mm. Good point. we share what we know. We make other people successful so that everyone can be more successful. And I think STC is a really important vehicle for that, as well as other, you know, conferences like LavaCon and ICC and so on. Mm. Um, I think that all of those things are very important. But that, I think STC in particular, you know, I have a lot of, have a lot of love for the STC because mm. they were the people who told me that what I do has a title. There's a real <laughs> job. And, uh, and, you know, I think that that's what really attracted me to the editorship of Intercom is the the potential to to make an impact on people, mm. the potential to um, maybe get people thinking about things in a little different way, and maybe thinking about some things that they wouldn't normally think about. And I I, I like to be a little controversial and and uh, you know throw some throw some curveballs at people. And so <laughs> I'm hoping Intercom Intercom will make people stop and say. Wait a minute! Is that intercom? Nice. Uh, that article. That. I look forward. Yeah, to that. that's that's the goal. That's the goal. We'll see. <laughs> right, shaking things up. I love it. <laughs> so the last question I ask of my guest Andrea is, um, and along those lines, is what do you talk about and what do you like to do when you don't talk about technical writing and content strategy? And my follow-up question to that is, are you part of the techcom knitting cabal? Well, I am not part of the TechCom knitting cabal, but I know them well, okay. and I share their passion for fiber. Uh. <clears throat> so there's a whole, I don't actually knit, but I love fiber. Interesting. Uh, and in fact, I'm trying to remember exactly what kind of fiber it was. And it may be that Sarah or, or Sharon or Bonnie or one of the knitters <laughs> will remember, but... Um, I had a conversation with someone a few years ago in an STC conference about a fiber that's made from like 
the undercoat of a yak or Jeez. some like crazy animal like that. And it is literally the softest fiber I have ever felt in my entire life. Hmm. And it is about for a, like a half ounce skein, it's something like $150. It oh, is really, really expensive. Like a sweater out of that would probably be like an $800 oh my God. sweater. It would be like a really, really expensive sweater. Um, and it is super, super soft. So I I can really get passionate about the fiber. Huh. But I am really more about the cotton fibers. So okay. I, um, I don't spend much time not talking about content. <laughs> but when I do, <coughs> excuse me. But when I do, I am usually quilting. Okay. So I've been quilting since about the, since the early 90s, 90, 91. And um, I make quilt tops. I have a big long arm quilting machine. And I do the quilting for my quilts, my sister's quilts and my mom's quilts. And uh, we get together. This is how we spend our three-day weekends. Oh, nice. We all get together and we sew for three days. And wow. usually we have a project, like we make a bag or we make a specific quilt top. One time we made a wallet. <laughs> My sister uh, loves to pick our projects and she likes bags and wallets. So um, I consider myself an art quilter. I like to, I like to learn techniques. I don't don't typically create quilts according to patterns. Okay. And I have actually developed my own patterns and hmm. I do a lot of teaching. I teach people to quilt. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, I, I love to quilt. If you go out to my Facebook page, I have an album with a bunch of my quilts in it. In fact, I need to update it. I've got some new stuff. Hmm. But uh, you'll see I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of out there in the quilting. Um, <clears throat> when I'm not quilting... I have bees. I keep bees. Oh, get out of here. And uh, yeah, this past year, I took my first four and a half gallons of honey. Wow. Which uh, has been wildly popular uh, with with the people that I have given it to. Oh, so nice. that's pretty cool. And uh, and I actually really enjoy uh, spending time with my dogs. I have two dogs and I love to teach them new things. <laughs> and I love to learn about dog training. And I love to... Uh, I love to take them for walks and have my neighbors comment on how well behaved they are. That <laughs> totally makes my day. Um, so we, I do that with my with my significant other, Doug. We uh, spend a lot of time with our dogs. They're our four legged furry kids. Jeez. Oh, and uh, yeah, so that's and I I love 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 being in Maine and okay. visiting Acadia National Park. I'm only about 20 minutes from Acadia. Oh wow! Driving around, it's it's the most beautiful place on earth in my view. So, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's very, very cool. So that's my, those are my off hours. Interesting. God, if only Maine were a little bit warmer, maybe I'd move. There you go. <laughs> it's not that much colder than New Jersey. Uh, I don't right. think. I don't, if I'm going anywhere, it's going to be warmer and not colder. So <laughs> you, you and Doug, Doug, my significant other is all about going to the warm places. Nice. Well, yeah, we're uh, we're just planning our, our February trip to uh, someplace warm. So nice. Where will you go? Uh, Turks and Caicos. It looks like. Do you scuba dive? No. Oh my goodness! You should totally learn to dive. Okay. And you can probably learn to dive there. You can mm. take a resort course. Doug and I scuba dive. We haven't been in a long time, sadly, but we Turks and Caicos uh, is amazing. We have been there diving. 
my dad is a scuba guy. He's been certified for God, 20, 30 years now, I think. So he always brings his equipment whenever he goes to Sandals or whatever the uh, resorts yes. they go to. Well, that, it's it's a fun thing. Well, that was awesome, Andrea. Thank you very much for your time, and thanks for uh, you know telling us all your awesome freaking stories and uh, <laughs> and laughing a lot with me. This is uh, this was a lot of fun. I knew you know I knew we were going to have a good time talking, but this was really cool. I'm, I'm really glad we got to do it. Well, I'm glad you had a good time because I have to tell you, um, I don't even have as much fun doing my podcast as I do doing other people's <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> so this was a blast. Um, my first experience with podcasts was uh, the Enterprise Marketer podcast, mm. and that was the thing that got me super passionate about podcasting. Okay. And uh, and then one of my virtual mentors, Amy Porterfield, she has a fantastic podcast called the Online Marketing Made Easy podcast, okay. and that is the podcast that I modeled my podcast after because uh. I have not. She's got 160 or 170 episodes. I've listened to all of them. Some of them are an hour or longer. I have never found one that I did not find something valuable oh, and nice. actionable in. So that's my model. That's what I'm going for is to is to be the Amy Porterfield of the content podcast. We'll see. We'll see if it works. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, um, I think it's it's so, so much fun, and I really oh, really God, appreciate yeah. you inviting me, Ed. It's my pleasure. I think I met it's uh, Enterprise Marketer Podcast. His name is Jeff, right? Yes, Jeff Julian. Yes. He's awesome. Yeah, I met and him in the super content fun marketing too. world two years ago, and I was I yes. said, "Hey, I'm a podcaster." He's got a hell of a setup, so it's uh, pretty oh, impressive. it's crazy. It's crazy. In fact, he does a podcast, a video cast um, from ICC that is poker. So ICC huh. Intelligent Content Conference is in. Las Vegas uh, at the M Resort, and he sets up around his whole podcast thing. He sets up a poker table, and Pamela Muldoon brings her chips and cards, and he gets four people playing poker, and then he asks them questions about the content of the conference. Oh my god! <laughs> if you, I will. Um, I actually played a game. It was hilarious. Uh, probably more fun and hilarious for us than for people watching, but <laughs> um, it's a, it's only a small amount indulgent. Uh, but I'll send you a link to that because okay, it cool. is hilarious and fun. And um, it took podcast to a place, a whole different place for me. <laughs> I never expected there would be a poker playing podcast. So there That's, you go. Yeah, nice alliteration there too. <laughs> All right, Andrew, can you tell us where we can find you and your new company, Idle Point Group? You absolutely can. Uh, it is idlepointgroup.com. And I apologize if there's barking in the background. My, my, hey, puppy. Dog has, my dog has decided he's excited about something. Um, so it's idyllpointgroup.com. That's my website. Don't be disappointed if you get there and isn't and there isn't a ton of stuff there yet. But after the first of February, my blog will be fleshed out with my podcast show notes and so on, and uh, there'll be more stuff coming. 
Awesome. That's fantastic. Um, where we can find you on Twitter? Yeah, at A Ames. Is that the best place nice, to find you? One. Are you on LinkedIn too or all that stuff? I'm also on LinkedIn. I've got, I'm on Facebook and Idle Point Group has a Facebook page as well, okay. which again, uh, I'm hoping as soon as I get my podcast launched, maybe sooner, I'm going to be doing some short Facebook mm. lives on my oh, Facebook okay. page as well. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I actually, uh, Content Content Podcast also has a Facebook page that you should all like and subscribe. But uh, I've never thought about doing live video. That's a cool. That's a yes. Cool thing. Huh? Yes. Yeah, because I should... don't have anything else to do with my time. <laughs> that's right. Well, they can be short. Yeah, that's true. That's in, that's interesting. All right. I'm the cool thing about the cool thing about Facebook Lives is, even though I mean, clearly you love to get people there live, but Facebook saves them, and so they're there, and people can come back and look at them anytime. So even if you don't get people live. People, right, if you, it's, it's evergreen. they're there, huh. but if you do your Facebook lives at a regular time and people start to realize you that you're doing them oh, like every Friday at noon or whatever, then you can start to get more live audience and you can have more interaction, which is cool. I would never have thought of that though. My God. Well, no. I'm... All the fun stuff oh, I'm learning from Amy Porterfield. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I guess I'm, maybe that's what I'm going to do in 2018 with all my, all my plentiful free time <laughs> there you go <laughs> all right um well you can like i said you can follow us on uh on facebook and you can also find me on twitter at ed marsh and at edmarsh.com of course you can find this podcast at edmarsh.com slash podcast you can also subscribe on itunes tune in radio google play music podcast store probably a couple other places that i'm forgetting uh please also write us a review and let us know how we're doing we actually have our first review on iTunes. It's so exciting and it's a five-star review, so that's awesome. Um, the person's name, I think, was Aunt Sue. It is not my actual aunt, so let's not make sure that this is nepotism. Um, some lady wrote to me and said she likes the podcast. So, um, that's so awesome. Yes, it was, yeah, it was pretty cool. So, uh, you know, we'd love to have more reviews. Let us know how we're doing. Suggest some guests or some suggestions or just tell us to shut the whole damn thing down. Um, you can, of course, find everything, including every podcast we've recorded at edmarsh.com slash podcast. So Andrea, thanks again. That was that was awesome, and this is going to be a fun uh, fun one to put out. So thanks everyone, and uh, go out there and create some better content. Woohoo! Thank you, Ed. <laughs> <laughs>